Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for a familiar text. I thank you for the opportunity to read, to listen, and to constantly mine your word. Lord, I pray that it would be like a garland of grace upon our heads, that we would absorb it into our hearts, that our minds would chew on the truths that are presented to us today, and that our affections would be changed and modeled after you. Lord, I thank you for Dr. Ken and his opportunity to come and serve. Thank you for Pastor Andrew who is away but just a few more weeks. pray you would bless their time. I pray you would help us as a congregation to think through these words, these times, and our actions within it. God, I thank you for Christ Church. I thank you for the many hands that make the work come together. May your name be praised, and may we listen to your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Light for me to uh, have the opportunity and honor to bring God's word to you today. Uh, I appreciate the uh, trust that the session has placed in this unknown quantity from South Texas. Uh, Delighted that uh, the PCA 
received my ordination credentials and uh, made me one of you. And I indeed felt like I was finally home in the PCA. So uh, before you, uh, we have been for the last several weeks in Pastor Andrew's absence being uh, challenged by verses that have been etched on the hearts of your speakers. And uh, I think we can all uh, perhaps appreciate the fact that there are many such verses. And you might be a little bit curious about the one that I selected for today. Uh, this is why I speak to them in parables. Jesus answers his disciples when questioned on his teaching technique. And he said, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. This uh, passage from Matthew 13 has encouraged me on a number of occasions when people would challenge scripture uh, in my hearing uh, they would uh, show what they perceive to be, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? In, uh, <laughs> inconvenient uh, truths that, that they saw there but didn't believe it. They, they thought they were uh, wrong. They, they figured that there was uh, something going on, a, a, an alleged contradiction, and uh, worried then about whether or not the Bible were true. And, and I would see that as a time when people seeing did not see or hearing did not hear or did not understand. And so my prayer for us today and uh, throughout my own uh, review of scripture has always been, Lord, where is the gospel in this text? Open my eyes to see Christ. Open my ears to hear what we sang in Rock of Ages. I particularly love that third verse that speaks about being washed clean by Jesus. Uh, well, I refer to these alleged contradictions in Scripture as biblical speed bumps. You go over them, and, and if you're uh, not alert to them, you just kind of go over the bump and keep on going. Otherwise, you come to that and you stop and you say, what's going on in the text here? Uh, for instance, in Luke 22, during the, the uh, Last Supper, Luke records for us that Jesus gave the disciples, the twelve, the cup. And then in the next verse, he says, and then, watch what's happening here, gave them the cup, and then he gave them the bread. And I always thought, that's odd. What's going on here? Uh, and if you'd like to have a conversation digitally with me, uh, my email is there. And so email, we, we, we can talk about that. Well, another one is that in Matthew, Matthew tells us that after Judas Iscariot threw the 30 pieces of silver before the Jewish authorities, he went out and hanged himself. Luke, in Acts 1.18, says that Judas, falling headlong, he burst asunder. Uh, I think our, 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 our late uh, 
early teen boys really get a kick out of that kind of verse, you know. But, but I was wondering, what's going on here? He hanged himself, and he fell headlong and burst asunder. And it took me a while until I discovered that Judas didn't hang himself with a rope. Email me if you want to talk some more about that. <laughs> After feeding the 5,000, now the seniors, uh, we, we participate in the senior group here and uh, enjoy lunch together once a month. I had the opportunity to share with them the story about the feeding of the 5,000. And then after that, when Jesus sends his disciples into the boat that would carry them across the Sea of Galilee right into a fierce and frightful storm. I was thinking of that this morning around 2 a.m. with the crashing of thunder. And I'm, I'm thinking about the, the terror that the disciples faced in that boat. And as I shared with the seniors, I thought about what cargo must have been in that boat that would have given them great hope and peace and courage. You can either email me or talk to one of the seniors, and maybe they'll share with you my answer. Well, I imagine, as I said earlier, there are many passages of scripture that are etched on your hearts and on the hearts of your guest speakers. Uh, this particular passage from Matthew 13, 13 and 16, is my go-to verse for understanding the parables of Jesus. I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. But you, blessed, your eyes, they see, your ears, they hear. And so as Dan read that scripture for us today, I was praying that with the aid of the Holy Spirit today, we would find in this passage of scripture the good news of Jesus Christ, much of which we have sung about already and heard during our confession of sin. Well, if you've been around the Christian church, or, or it doesn't even matter, the Christian church, you've been in Western society, you know the story about the Good Samaritan. And if, in fact, you've, you've heard this parable as the text for a sermon, you're probably wondering how uncomfortable I'm going to make you feel in the course of this sermon, make, make us feel how bad we are at being caring for everyone who is less fortunate than ourselves. Perhaps you conclude it's a nice story, but not really practical. I'll try to be more neighborly, but I've got commitments, I've got obligations, so many demands on my time. I just can't be everybody's good Samaritan. So we leave church feeling a little down on ourselves, more of a failure at this thing called Christianity. Within its context, the parable is fairly long and the dialogue surrounding it is relatively short. Thus, there's a natural tendency for the reader to ignore the dialogue and then point only to the parable and it then becomes only an ex ethical exhortation to reach out 
to those in need. And that's when we determine to try harder or give up. I believe an examination of the dialogue will guide us and direct us into a better understanding of this parable. Beginning in verse 25, you have it in your uh, text in your scripture or in the uh, worship folder, we discover there a dialogue between Jesus and the lawyer. And, and you'll see that it's made up in eight verbal exchanges that fall into two precise rounds of debate. In each of these rounds, there are two questions and two answers. The lawyer asks a question, and Jesus replies with a question. Then the lawyer answers Jesus' question, after which Jesus answers the lawyer's question. You see that? Ask a question, respond with a question. He answers, and then Jesus answers his question. So Jesus is responding to this lawyer who is testing Jesus by testing him back with a corollary question. So let's examine the dialogue. Let's, let's examine uh, what's going on in the lawyer's mind and how Jesus is responding to this test. In round one, the first question is, teacher, what shall I do? Operative word there. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Quite likely the audience, because this would not be alone, uh, the, the lawyer is testing Jesus in front of others. So there's a big audience gathered around here, and, and together with the lawyer, the audience is going to expect Jesus to provide a list of things to do. I want you to hear what rabbis of Jesus' day would say are the things to do. This place, paradise, is prepared for the righteous who endure all manner of offense from those that exasperate their souls, who avert their eyes from iniquity and make righteous judgments and give bread to the hungering and cover the naked with clothing and raise up the fallen and help injured orphans and who walk without fault before the face of the Lord and serve him alone. And for them is prepared this place for eternal inheritance. So you can imagine the lawyer is expecting a discussion about some similar list to which he'll be able to say, well, I've done those things, so therefore I'm okay, and, and I have done that which is required to inherit eternal life. And I'm afraid sometimes we get caught up in this as well, right? What, what can I do to merit God's love? What, what can I do to get an attaboy? And this is what this lawyer is looking at. There's a movement within conservative Presbyterianism and, and the Reformed theology that we are saved by faith, but we're kept by our faithfulness. Have you heard that? In other words, we're saved by faith, but we're kept by works. Email me if you want to continue that conversation. Well, Jesus instead asks a separate, a different question. 
he asks, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer responds from the law, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus praises him for his right theology, his good knowledge, and I want you to see loving God and neighbor part and parcel of the same law. So we're to love God and love our neighbor. But notice Jesus then challenges him on his willingness to act on it. You have answered correctly. You have asked what must I do to inherit eternal life. The Greek in this passage says, continue doing this and you will live. The assumption is, all right, lawyer, you've obviously been living this kind of, of uh, compassionate, caring life all your life. Continue doing that and you'll live. It's not a question of, okay, now begin doing this, but keep doing this. And clearly, the very law which the lawyer quotes sets a standard that no one can fully reach. And the lawyer knew this. And he hoped that Jesus would define a specific, limited requirement. See, the Pharisees of that day had, had created 613 laws to serve as a hedge or a commentary around the Ten Commandments. Not ten, but 613. If you do these things, then you'll have kept the ten. So essentially, the lawyer is asking, am I okay if I do things this way? Jesus' answer, however, is a command for a changed lifestyle. It requires unlimited and unqualified love for God and people. What's he going to do? Is he going to throw himself on the mercy of the court? Or is he going to seek to justify himself? And you know that round two begins exactly there, with him seeking to justify himself. And so he poses his second question to Jesus. Who is my neighbor? The lawyer is still hoping. You see, he's still hoping for something to do something and gain eternal life. Perhaps if Jesus will just set some boundaries I can achieve, then I'll be okay. Even in Leviticus chapter 19, which the lawyer would know by heart, Leviticus identifies the neighbor as being one's brother and the sons of your own people. Someone who looks like you, who talks like you, who thinks like you. Maybe the lawyer expects this to be Jesus' answer. At which point the lawyer can say, I have fully loved these. And then Jesus would praise him and likely say, you have truly fulfilled the law. The lawyer will, will bask in the praise of his good works, depart and enjoy newly won honor and confidence before the people. But instead, Jesus tells our story. Now, to be sure, the story is part of the dialogue, but Jesus is setting up the story so that he can ask the lawyer his second question. So let's hear the story as the lawyer would. As the lawyer would with his knowledge of the topography of the land and the history of the Jewish people in the Bible. 
So Jesus begins the story. He replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jerusalem is 25 feet above sea level. Jericho was about 850 feet below sea level, near the Dead Sea. And so clearly when Jesus says down to Jericho, the journey was quite literally downhill all the way. It's a drop of an altitude of about a mile in 17 miles of length. Uh, according to those who've been there, the road is noticeably steep. Uh, you probably don't see these signs in Michigan, but there are signs in the East Coast and in the West Coast as well where you have a, a warning sign that says steep grade ahead, 5%, 6%, or 7%. Are there any of those in Michigan? I, I don't think so. Maybe Iowa? No, no, wouldn't be there. <laughs> Idaho, for sure. Uh, this road is probably about 6%, so it would clearly qualify for this warning sign. Uh, CJ and, and Kay Verbrugge uh, are in the uh, senior group, and they did a slideshow one Tuesday, and I particularly watched for and was pleased to see a picture of this road that they had taken. And so downhill, obvious from the photograph, and clearly this is what Jesus was describing. And the lawyer would know, okay, that's the kind of place he's going. And Jesus says he fell among robbers. And of course, the lawyer would say, well, duh, of course, he's alone on that road. That's where the robbers are. Well, who were these robbers? The lawyer's assumption would probably be found so close to Jerusalem that they were most probably Jewish. And the lawyer would reasonably expect the traveler to be Jewish. And what did the robbers do? They stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. I want us to focus on stripped him leaving him half dead. Jesus intentionally and cleverly leaves the man undescribed. He's naked and certainly unconscious. And this is a vital ingredient to intensify the drama. In the Middle Eastern world of Jesus, travelers could easily identify others by their speech and by their dress. A few questions and the language would identify who the person is. Remember Peter's giveaway Galilean accent at the time of the trial? Well, no problem that he's unconscious by the side of the road. A quick glance at the stranger's clothes would be sufficiently revealing. Do you see what this traveler, as Jesus is describing him, is reduced by the robbers to a mere human being in need? I don't think we can hear this parable without asking the question, what, what would I do? I might stop to help, but not wanting to get caught up in the intrigue of the circumstances. I, I, I don't want to have to be a witness in court. Uh, who knows how much time I've got here before the robbers come to get me. Uh, I'm really busy. I've got to keep moving. So a question that has been asked many many times in light of the recent massacre in Uvalde, Texas, that left 21 people dead. Is there a legal requirement to help? 
We're all taught to dial 911 when we need help, right? It might come as a surprise and maybe even a shock that subject to narrow exceptions, according to a 1989 ruling of the US Supreme Court, the United States Constitution does not, does not require even law enforcement officers to protect you from other people. This notion contradicts our ingrained expectations, but it is the law today. And as we examine the, the responses of the passers-by, I want us to keep this in mind. In the absence of a legal obligation, how do we understand our moral obligation to help? Verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, a priest is a member of the elite and prestigious class of Jewish society. And you can be sure he was not walking those 17 miles. He was riding. And when he comes upon the wounded man, he steers his mount to the far side of the road and continues on his way. Why didn't he help? I know the priest gets a bad rap here, but I want to try for a moment to be his advocate. We need to understand the priest's world, how he thinks, how he lives. According to the book of Sirach, which uh, was an apocryphal book, also known as Ecclesiasticus, and, and the lawyer would be clearly familiar with this book as well, here's what Sirach says. If you do a good turn, know for whom you are doing it, and your good deeds will not go to waste. Do good to a devout man, and you will receive a reward. If not from him, then certainly from the Most High. Give to a devout man. Do not go to the help of a sinner. You see the conflict that this priest is facing? When confronted with a mute, stripped body, the priest is paralyzed. With speech impossible and distinctive dress missing, the priest can't identify this wounded man. Now, let's, let's try to understand the mental gymnastics of the priest. If the priest comes within six feet of a dead person, maybe that's where we get the six feet apart sound. Yeah. If, if he comes within six feet of a dead person or makes physical contact with a non-Jew, the priest becomes ceremonially unclean. Once defiled, the priest will have to follow strict guidelines to overcome this defilement. He has to tear his garment, his ornate robe, and he's under great conflict not to destroy something valuable like his garment. He will have to find, buy, and reduce to ashes a red heifer, not a common uh, among cattle, not, not common uh, cow. Uh, and it's a ritual both costly and time-consuming. And to add insult to injury, he will have to stand in humiliation at the eastern gate with the unclean. I feel sorry for this priest, for the bad rap he's gotten over the years and generations and centuries. Do you see his predicament? The priest has a, was a victim of a rule book of do's and don'ts. And this mentality continues, persists in many forms to this day, inside many churches, too. 
if we only do these things and don't do those things, God will have greater regard for us. Do we think that? If I only do these things, God will love me more. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is poison. Well, what about the Levite? In the same class as the lawyer with whom Jesus is conversing. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Likewise implies that the Levite, like the priest, was descending the trail and, and no doubt following the priest. So when the Levite arrives upon the scene, it's reasonable to assume he will have seen the priest ahead of him wearing distinctive priestly garb and easily seen him on the switchbacks going downhill. And this detail is significant to the drama because the Levite is not bound by as many regulations as the priest. You, you see, the Levite could, could have rendered aid, and if the man were dead or died on his hands, the repercussions for him would not be nearly as serious. So why didn't the Levite offer aid? The text tells us he came to the place. That means he, he passed that six-foot barrier. He came up to the man, so fear of defilement couldn't be his strongest moment, uh, motive. Perhaps he was afraid of the robbers. More likely, it is the example of the higher-ranking priest that deters him. Perhaps he thought, my offer of aid could be interpreted as an affront to my superior, an implicit criticism of the priest's interpretation of the law. And I wonder, too, is not this our sin, too? Concern for what others will think of us. Now, in the course of the story, who do you suppose the lawyer anticipates the next person to be? Since the lawyer would anticipate that the priest and the Levite are coming after, going home after their two-week service in the temple. So the third person to come along the road would likely be a Jewish layman. And much to the shock and amazement of the audience, Jesus identifies the third man as the hated Samaritan. The Samaritans were publicly cursed in the Jewish synagogues, and that racism took the form of a petition daily offered up to God that the Samaritans might not be partakers of eternal life. Wow. Samaritan, Jesus, why, why did you have it to be a Samaritan? Jesus courageously speaks to one of the audience's deepest hatreds and painfully exposes it. So our question is, how would Jesus expose our deepest hatreds? So what does the Samaritan do for this wounded traveler? He came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. 
Jesus uses the actions of the Samaritan to remind his audience of the scriptures they would know of the actions of God to bring salvation. In Jeremiah 37, verse 17, the prophet says, speaking God's word, for I will restore health to you and your wounds I will heal. In Hosea 6, we have the Lord declaring that he will bind us up, will revive us, will raise us up, and will come to us. All four phrases apply equally to the Samaritan, the point that would not be lost on our lawyer. Are we discovering the gospel in this narrative? Do you see the irony? The priest and the Levite are the religious professionals who pour out the ceremonial oil and wine on the high altar before God. But it is the Samaritan who makes the living sacrifice and pours out oil and wine on the altar of this man's wounds. At this table, periodically, we take, eat, and drink and remember that the body and blood of Jesus were given for a complete remission of all of our sins. Christ is our sacrifice, pouring out his life that we might live. I want you to notice how the Good Samaritan undoes the mischief of the robbers. The robbers rob him, leave him dying, and abandon him. The Good Samaritan pays for him, leaves him taken care of, and promises to return. After telling the story, Jesus asks his question in response to the lawyer's request to know who his neighbor is. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, go, and you do Likewise, the lawyer asked what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus has pressed him to understand, I must become a neighbor to anyone in need. To fulfill the law means I must reach out in costly compassion to all people, even to my enemies. And the standard remains, even though I can never achieve it, I simply cannot justify myself to earn eternal life. You can almost hear the lawyer say, who then can be saved? Congregation, when you hear this encounter between the lawyer and Jesus, you have either of two responses. I must try harder. A response none of us will ever be able to achieve. Or I must cast myself and all my desire at self-justification upon the mercy of Christ. Hear the good news, the gospel. We are not the good Samaritan in the story. We are the wounded traveler. The entire human race is left on the side of the road, beaten by the enemy of our souls. 
Jesus is the Good Samaritan. You see, this parable is not so much what we must do to earn and inherit eternal life, but rather upon whom we should trust for eternal life. The one who has done all necessary for wounded travelers to enjoy eternal life. Early in the divine service, as with many congregations, we have a time of confession. And there are many who use a prayer acknowledging that we do not keep the law as the lawyer in today's gospel so eloquently articulated. In that case, together we would confess, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Then comes the opportunity for repentance. Listen. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. You see, we, we pray to be like the good Samaritan while confessing our racism, our lack of mercy, our failure to love our neighbors, all image bearers as ourselves, but always relying on him who is the good Samaritan to inherit eternal life. The lawyer desiring to justify himself. Are you that lawyer? Relying on your best efforts to please God? It doesn't work that way. Or are you the repentant sinner who hears with great relief and gladness the words of the minister? Christ has died for our sins and been raised for our justification. All you who repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, rejoice and be glad and give glory to the Lord who has taken away all of your sins. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our good Samaritan, that you know us intimately as your wounded neighbor. You have brought us to the inn, your church, and here we come to your table from which we are served bread and wine, not because we have earned a place, but because you came to us where we lay, even when we were dead in our trespasses and made us alive. Dear Holy Spirit, guide us to continually repent and seek ways to love our neighbors, expanding our understanding that our neighborhood is the world that all people are our neighbors. May we respond enthusiastically when given opportunities to serve them, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, trusting all the while that we are sinners saved by grace, and that we are also kept by that grace through the redeeming blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our good Samaritan. Amen.